Hey, a quick note before we start the show. As you may have noticed, the newest IPCC climate report is out this week, and it just shows once again how dire things are when it comes to climate change. We will be covering that in an upcoming show. We, we did not cover that this week. This episode was actually recorded at the end of last week. Catherine's going to be on vacation for a couple weeks, so we've got some great content coming up. But when we're back in full force, we will be digging into the IPCC report. So just wanted to give you a heads up on that. And also a heads up on our sponsors. SunGrow is a leading provider of PV inverter solutions across the world. SunGrow is providing energy storage systems to some of the largest projects in the U.S., like the Chisholm Grid Project in Fort Worth, Texas. Chisholm Grid is a 100-megawatt standalone battery storage installation. It's expected to start commercial operation in the middle of this year, and it's going to provide energy and grid services to the growing Texas market. Learn more about SunGrow's storage solutions by emailing them at info at sungrowamericas.com. We're also brought to you by SNC Electric. New technologies are unlocking innovative ways to solve power-related challenges. Those conventional wired approaches, they're still viable, but they're not always the best solution. And that's where non-wires alternatives come in. Those are microgrids and uh, battery storage systems that can provide sustainable, resilient, and economic ways to deliver reliable power. SNC Electric Company has provided innovative power solutions for over 100 years, and they can help utilities and commercial customers find the best solutions, including those non-wired ones. Learn more at sandc.com slash nwa. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. As crude oil prices shoot back up, oil majors are seeing billions in quarterly profits. Under pressure from activist investors and now the courts, will they spend it on the energy transition or just more share buybacks and oil rigs? Plus, a new report card on America's infrastructure is a slight improvement, but the grade is still pretty awful. And carbon offsets are going up in flames, literally. In Culpeper, Virginia... It's Catherine Hamilton. How are you, Catherine? I'm doing great. Um, we decided ourselves to go off of oil, and we leased an electric vehicle out here in rural Virginia. And the other weekend, we went to visit James Madison's home of Montpelier. And we were a little bit nervous because we had to drive a ways in our EV, and we pulled up, and there were eight charging stations, four <laughs> Teslas and four for the other schlubs. And we fall into the other schlub category. So we're pretty what, excited. What? What does being an other schlub means, mean in terms of model? <laughs> well, we actually got the Volvo uh, lease until we can just test it, see what it's like. It's the um, XP40, I think it's called. It's like the little SUV. And, uh, and then in three years, when a lot more um, models are ready, we can make an, a more informed decision. We may end up with an F-150 Lightning, for all I know. In New York... It is our guest co-host this week, Ed Crooks. He's vice chair of the Americas at Wood McKenzie, and he's the former energy editor at the Financial Times. You may have heard his voice a number of times on our sister podcast, The Interchange. Ed, how are you? Welcome. Hello. Hi. Great to be here. Um, yeah, like um, uh, Catherine, I've also just been uh, using a plug-in car. We've just got back from uh, England, just back from three weeks vacation there, first time in uh, more than 18 months seeing family and friends, so that's all been fantastic to do. And we actually rented a plug-in hybrid, a Skoda, while we were there. You know, Skoda, Skoda that's the uh, the Czech uh, car company. It's the kind of the budget brand of the Volkswagen group. And actually, we really liked it. We thought it was fantastic. And it, I mean, it's clearly, it's a bit of a different experience from a full battery EV. But uh, we were getting, you know, we would plug it in overnight and we would get 10 or 20 miles of uh, all electric driving out of it, which actually was really good. So um, yeah, no, I, was, I was impressed by that experience. Would be fascinated to hear about the Volvo though. For a long time in England, we used to drive a diesel Volvo, which was a lovely car. We're very fond of it. And now been thinking again about uh, having a, a maybe a, an electric Volvo in the future. So I uh, want to hear from you, Catherine, how you get on with that and uh, see if you like it. Yeah, so far so good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I saw that Brent crude prices are dropping today. So maybe it was your driving habits with EVs and hybrids that have caused the 
decrease in global oil prices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've been doing my bit for jet fuel demand, <laughs> unfortunately. Like, but. Well, since the start of the pandemic, we've heard from Ed a number of times who's come on to explain the wild swings in global oil prices and how it feeds into the pressure that oil majors are facing. We started this pandemic at negative oil prices because there was just no place to store it. And today, benchmark prices are hovering above $70, and top oil companies are reporting billions of dollars in profits as a result. But there's also more scrutiny than ever on how they're going to spend that money. Activist shareholders are starting to get climate champions on major board seats, most notably the push to get climate tech investor and former wind executive and uh, DOE official Andy Karsner on ExxonMobil's board. A Dutch court is now forcing Shell to reduce emissions from its products by 45% after a successful lawsuit from environmental groups, and oil executives now have their lawyers on speed dial. And big asset managers like BlackRock, which lend to many of the world's energy giants, are scrutinizing climate plans. So what does all this amount to as oil markets rebound? Ed, just set the scene for us. Compare today's oil market with the one from a year ago or over a year ago when the pandemic shut everything down. Yeah, it's been absolutely transformed in that uh, 15 months or so since the worst of the pandemic uh, impact uh, back in the spring of 2020. As you say, oil prices have been on a very steady upward trajectory really since uh, October, November of last year. And um, since June of this year, they've been in the kind of $70 range, sometimes up above $75 a barrel, even for benchmark Brent crude. That's really a very comfortable level for the oil industry. And as you say, we've seen those very good uh, earnings figures from oil companies uh, just in the past couple of weeks. Second quarter has generally been an excellent quarter in terms of oil company profits. A couple of crucial things are going on there driving that. Firstly, of course, there is just the um, revival in the world economy, the world kind of getting back to normal, as evidenced by the fact of people like me going on vacation. Um, oil demand has been picking up for gasoline, diesel, jet fuel and everything. That, that demand is increasing. And also, we've still got this impact from the OPEC plus countries from the OPEC members, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the UAE, and so on, uh, and also their allies outside OPEC, countries like Russia, Kazakhstan, Mexico, that have agreed to curb their output. So they took a lot of oil off the market last year, and they still haven't put all that back on the market. And the result has been actually a fairly tight uh, oil market worldwide, and that's uh, kept prices up. There is this concern then about whether I mean, a concern in the oil business about whether prices are going to stay at these kind of levels because people say the world economy might slow down again. There's concern uh, just recently in the past few days about the impact of uh, the Delta variant in Asia in particular and whether that's going to hit economic activity as the problems from that possibly grow. And there's still this overhang of oil on the market, as I say, from these OPEC countries, OPEC plus countries who want to bring oil back uh, into the world market increase their production and uh, increase supply. So there are these forces that mean oil may not go a whole lot higher. But as I say, where it is now, it's very comfortable position for the oil business. Yeah. And so what, what do oil companies typically do? Prices rise, profits rise. What do they do when they see higher earnings? How do they reinvest those dollars? Well, there's obviously a range of things that can happen. You can return some of that money to shareholders, share buybacks and dividends, um, or you can reinvest it. And you can put it out there into exploration, looking for new fields, development of, of existing fields, um, various ways to spend money to enhance and sustain production from assets that are already in production. The way that oil companies have made those capital allocation decisions has um, varied from time to time and from place to place. It's been, in particular, a very striking thing um, about the US industry is that essentially, traditionally, every spare dollar of capital has gone back into reinvestment, into new production. The, uh, the expression always was, if you give a driller a dollar, he'll drill another hole with it. And uh, that has been the case, partly, um, I think, because of the sort of the excitement over the U.S. shale revolution. It kind of, uh, in the past 15 years or so, it's been clear that there's been an absolute transformation in the U.S. oil and gas industry. People have seen that as uh, creating very attractive prospects for the future. 
everyone's wanted to get into that business and uh, investors have poured money into it and uh, oil companies have been very ready to take whatever money they had, as I say, drill more wells, increase production. Just in the past year or two, and particularly in the past year, there's been a very marked change in that. And the thing that's been really kind of dramatic is you've seen these companies, and there's been a lot of talk in the past about shareholder returns. Um, The US oil industry has been a terrible investment for just about everybody over the past decade and more. And companies have started to be conscious of that. They've been under pressure from their investors. They've been under pressure to do more to reward shareholders. So companies have been talking quite a lot about share buybacks, um, dividends, hanging on to their cash or, or, or returning their cash to shareholders, not pouring it into holes in the ground. So there's been talk about that. Now that talk is really translating into reality. And what we've seen um, just in the past uh, six months or so is that as oil companies' profits have risen a lot, their spending has not risen correspondingly. And I think that the number is, I think, on our calculations, first quarter of the year, US oil companies um, reinvested only about 48% of their total free cash flow. So in other words, they had um, a lot of money coming in that was available for them to distribute back to shareholders or to use to pay down their debts. And that was the other thing that that's um, happened is the US oil industry in particular has been very much kind of debt fueled, has built up a massive debt burden. And so companies have been able uh, to pay off that debt. So that's, that's a really significant shift. And I think it's a really important trend uh, to watch for the future is whether that gets maintained and whether we do still see companies maintaining that kind of discipline or whether perhaps if these prices, as I say, these very comfortable levels persist for a few more quarters, whether we will see spending really start to pick up again and whether companies will kind of go for growth in a big way. So let's talk about some of the climate pressures that are unfolding right now that have really become more pronounced in the last year. You've got all these social legal shareholder pressures that are coming coalescing around climate and energy transition policies within these oil companies. Catherine, how do you see all these conditions coming together? Like what forces are at play right now? Yeah, it's super interesting. There was a piece in Bloomberg um, that really highlighted the fact that a a lot of lawyers are being called by the majors like Baker Botts and Vincent and Elkins down in Houston were both interviewed and uh, about the legal risks of being in an industry that is really subject to having to, to completely change everything it does, um, including environmental justice. So what they said is like, this is not just a check the box exercise. It's not if I put this, this and this in place, if I do a little bit on environmental, social and corporate governance, ESG, it'll all take care of it. Because you see these decisions like in the Dutch court with Shell, where even though Shell said, look, we're in line with Paris, we're going to go to net zero by 2050. The court said, no, the plans that you have are not adequate to get you there with engine number one, with Exxon, able to get three new members of the board, their argument was bad management. There's no credible credible strategy, they said, to create value in a decarbonized world. And so these companies are being looked at with a much finer microscope. Um, and they it just looks like, based on what the attorneys are saying and what the courts are saying, and in some cases, the the activist shareholders are saying, you actually have to put forward something that we can believe in. Yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think it's worth noting that oil companies are responding to those kind of pressures in lots of different ways, right? So um, if you are a US exploration and production company, one of the smaller businesses, probably not hugely realistic for you to diversify into renewables and there may be other things you can do and we can perhaps talk about that in a bit but you're not going to see those companies probably diversifying hugely for a big international global group it's absolutely realistic that they could diversify we saw for instance the danish company ersted it was an oil and gas company danish oil and natural gas has now transitioned entirely out of oil and gas it's a uh, big player in the renewable energy industry, big player in 
uh, offshore wind in particular and has other, other power assets. We're seeing really all the big European oil and gas companies talking about heading in the same direction, BP, Shell, Equinor, uh, any of Italy. They're all um, planning to head in that same direction. And it was very interesting just seeing um, Bernard Looney, the chief executive of BP, talking about that a couple of days ago. So BP has, like other oil and gas companies, had very good uh, earnings, making a lot of money. It's talking, though, about returning 60% of its cash to shareholders in the form of share buybacks, increased dividend. It's also diversifying strongly into renewable energy of various kinds. It's investing in wind and solar, investing a lot of money, for instance, in offshore wind in the US. It's also getting into EV charging and so on. So the amount that's actually left for it to reinvest into its core oil and gas business, or its traditional core oil and gas business, is going to be very limited. So it's, I mean, it's, as I say, it's, it's kind of interesting. Catherine, you talk about this pressures, as you say, pressure from investors, uh, legal pressure on all of these companies, pretty uniform pressure, but pretty different responses. Catherine, when you look at these stories, the shareholder activism the, around the Exxon board, the Shell lawsuit, the critical eye of asset managers, do any of them stand out as a particularly noteworthy story? Is is there any is there any that's most consequential? You think? Well, they are in different ways. So I thought it was pretty significant that ExxonMobil got three new directors. Now that's like trying to change from within um, and from the board level. But when you look at, uh, as Ed was talking about, what they're all these companies are investing in, you know, you see bits and pieces of this. You see someone like Occidental that is investing in carbon capture technology. Well, they're kind of doubling down into the current business model. Then you see some of the European majors are investing more in renewables and EV charging, but it really depends on how they do it. So there was a really interesting interview on Redefining Energy podcast with the vice president of customer solutions at Shell Renewables, um, Ulrich Rising. And she says, look, we are really thinking very hard about EV charging, hydrogen, renewables, et cetera. But the, the argument at the end becomes, are you actually allowing those to become those new entrepreneurial, different business model ventures to become part of the culture of your company? Are they really allowed to be change agents? Are, are, you, are you making your typical OEM business model of a major change by allowing those new industries to have a real leadership role. And I think that's kind of what we have to wait and see, especially with Shell, as they're making these promises. Are they really going to take that into, just like Orsted did, like take it into a new direction and have it completely change their business? So all these stories obviously feel very consequential to me. The one that's top of mind for me is what the world's top asset managers, investors are saying about dialing in climate plans. Because you have companies like BlackRock, which, you know, they they invest in a lot of bonds. Basically, they're making these general corporate investments in uh, large companies all over the world. And they're deciding, does this should I lend to this company or not? Right. And you have uh, hedge funds and pension funds and other kinds of investment vehicles around the world that are making the same kinds of decisions. And so the bond market itself is pretty important and consequential here. And when, and when you have a large group of investors that are coming around and forming this net zero investment alliance, um, you start to put pressure on these companies who they may actually end up being, in the eyes of these investors, riskier bets, right? Some of these investors, you might have uh, bond investors who are trying to short these companies if they're not properly thinking about the climate risks of some of their assets. Uh, you may have some of these big asset managers who actually believe that those shorts are good bets. So I see that this is an evolving, it's still somewhat small, but evolving pressure point that feels meaningful to me. And I've been reporting a story about how the bond markets work and how it may put pressure on different kinds of fossil fuel infrastructure companies. So this one feels 
increasingly important, but still early days. Any thoughts on that, Ed? Yeah, I I entirely agree with you. I think, uh, as you say, when you look across the landscape of all the pressures and forces that are kind of shaping the oil and gas industry and and driving it in the energy transition, it's the influence of investors that's going to be the most important. At the end of the day, these companies exist um, to deliver investor returns. They're not there for any other purpose, uh, ultimately. And um, that is going to be the thing, you know, they they don't survive if they don't give investors what they want. And so that is going to be colossally important. And as you say, it's it's partly on the bond side that you were just talking about, um, debt financing and so on, if companies don't have access to that, um, because of their um, carbon footprint or um, their emissions profile, that's going to be a very big issue. There is also just the question in the equity market of these companies are owned by these large investors. The large investors are absolutely dominant. And the example that uh, Catherine was just talking about in terms of uh, Exxon and the three directors being voted onto the board who were backed by engine number one, the reason that happened was because large investors, including BlackRock, the most mainstream financial institutions in the world, if you like, um, these very sort of um, large, typically often quite slow-moving Um, very small-c conservative institutions. They are the guardians of the pensions and uh, savings and insurance funds of um, large sections of the world's population. They're not kind of um, radicals or crazy risk-takers by any means, but these are the companies that think the industry has got to change, and it was their decision at uh, ExxonMobil in particular, backing change at ExxonMobil that led to that, that change in the board there. And as you say, you, you mentioned this initiative, the, the Net Zero Asset, Man- Asset Managers Initiative. That's a massively important thing. I mean, you talked about it being sort of, you know, at the margins somewhat now, which is right. I think it is um, only starting to exert pressure, but it's got enormous potential to uh, have influence. Uh, this initiative now, it's got all the big names involved. So it has BlackRock, um, Vanguard, State Street, UBS, all the, the world's biggest asset management firms. They have combined assets. I think it's actually even gone up since then. But the last time I looked at it, the number was they have $37 trillion of assets under management. It's an absolutely colossal amount. That's 40% of all the assets under management worldwide. And they have committed to this very ambitious climate agenda. They're talking about um, having uh, proportions of their assets under management that are committed to net zero by 2050. And they talk about a sort of a ratchet mechanism where every five years that proportion uh, of companies uh, and their assets under management will increase to the point that essentially by 2050, they will have 100% of their assets under management committed to net zero in 2050. Um, in other words, all the assets they invest in will be at net zero emissions. If they can manage to deliver on that ambition, that's an enormous change. That makes a huge difference in terms of shifting the world onto a trajectory to achieve the Paris Climate Goals. So, uh, as you say, I think it's hard to overstate just how important that is. That's going to be a really important one to watch for the future. So the direction has become incredibly clear, but the outcome... I'm not sure if it's any clearer yet. Do either of you feel any differently about the accelerated pace of change at oil majors? Obviously, knowing that each company is different and each region they're operating in is different. Uh, Catherine, do you want to start? Has the outcome become any clearer to you? So one thing that I do think is happening is, you know, we're talking about the big investors and how money is making a big difference in in the change. But we also need to look at what's happening really on the local level. And there's a lawsuit in Colorado where Boulder County is suing ExxonMobil and Suncor because they're going to have to pay $100 million to adapt to drainage, transport systems to reduce wildfire risk, not to mention the fact that you know Colorado is a big ski area. And they're saying, how are we going to do this? We want the people who caused this to pay. And they're going after the majors. And I think that is really going to make a difference because so many communities today are impacted by climate events that are really can be directly linked to what these companies have done and put into the atmosphere and what and done to our land. And I think it's this convergence of communities becoming more aware and impact becoming greater, coupled with 
investors saying, this is too big of a risk for us. That's going to really finally change this industry. Yeah, the attribution science piece is one we haven't really discussed that could be a game changer in terms of fueling additional investor pressures or lawsuits. So super interesting. Ed, uh, final thoughts? Has the outcome here become any clearer to you as this has evolved over the last year? Well, as I say, I think the pressure from investors is absolutely clear in setting that direction and setting that ultimate goal. I agree with you. I think the outcome is still somewhat unclear. I think it's worth just um, making one point, which is that I guess we don't necessarily want the outcome to be all oil and gas companies becoming renewable energy companies, um, even in a Paris-aligned world, there is going to be some demand for oil and gas. Someone's going to have to produce that. You probably want that to be the right companies that are going to be the most responsible in their production and have the lowest associated emissions. And some of the time, maybe it's just going to be the right thing for do, essentially for companies to kind of wind themselves up to over time, produce oil for as long as there is demand, but have their production kind of decreasing return capital to investors um, as they have it. And essentially, as I say, kind of fade away um, as the industry declines. That is definitely going to be a good strategy for some people. That's, there's going to be plenty of money still to be made doing exactly that, kind of uh, riding that uh, wave of the energy transition into the sunset. And so, as I say, I think we, we shouldn't kind of get hung up on the idea that only an oil company becoming a renewable energy company is the right way to go. I think there are going to be many different strategies that are going to be appropriate in the energy transition. Before we move on, a quick word about our sponsors. SunGrow is a supporter, a longtime supporter of the show. They're a leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. It's also supplying more than 1.5 gigawatt hours of energy storage technology to projects across America. That includes the Chisholm Grid Battery Energy Storage Project that's in Fort Worth, Texas. Along with lithium-ion batteries, Chisholm Grid will use SunGrow's advanced converters and controls in a long-term services contract to meet the demanding ERCOT market conditions while reducing operations costs and extending the lifespan of the assets. SunGrow is also walking the walk. In the past year, it joined the RE100 with the commitment to switch its global power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. To learn more about how SunGrow is expanding the solar industry, the storage market, and decarbonizing its own operations, email info at sungrowamericas.com. We're also brought to you by SNC Electric. You know, there's a lot of challenges on the electric grid. Things are decarbonizing fast, but doing it even faster requires dealing with reliability concerns, rising energy costs, cybersecurity risks, uh, electric vehicle management, microgrids, you know, all sorts of distributed energy assets that are just making the environment more complex. And solving these challenges requires careful consideration about making major investments. And if you're a utility or commercial enterprise, you're faced with a critical decision. Do you take a conventional wired approach or do you respond in a non-conventional way? Whatever you choose, SNC Electric will help you evaluate these big decisions more efficiently and with more confidence. SNC will be with you every step of the way, thoroughly working with your challenges and reviewing your energy needs to offer an expanded set of solutions developed specifically for you and your grids. Learn more at snc.com slash NWA. Every few years, since 1988, the American Society of Civil Engineers releases a report card on the health of U.S. infrastructure. We started in 1988 with a C, and we've got nothing but Ds and D-pluses in the years since. Almost everything around this country, bridges, dams, water systems, sewer systems, foundations, transit systems are old or aging, and investment in improving them has been vastly lower than what's needed. I'm going to read some stats right here uh, on ACSE's webpage. They say there's a water main break every two minutes and an estimated 6 billion gallons of water is lost each day in the U.S. That's 9,000 swimming pools. The wear and tear in our nation's roads have left 43% of public roadways in poor or mediocre condition. And there are 30,000 miles of inventoried levees across the U.S. Uh, and 10,000 miles of them, are their conditions are just unknown. So this year, we got a C-. Not really a 
big change from the D-plus we got in the last assessment in 2017. Perhaps Biden's infrastructure push nudged us up a little bit. We can talk about the change in grade. Energy infrastructure saw a slight uptick in its GPA, also from a D-plus to a C-minus, and that's because of increased spending on transmission and distribution infrastructure and on renewable energy. But outages have increased dramatically over the last two decades. In an episode we just had a couple of weeks ago, uh, we noted that there's been a 67% increase in outages since 2000. And our efforts to make the system more climate resilient have been spotty at best. So what's happening here? Catherine, what do you make of this year's report card? Yeah, it's funny when they when they talk about the grading scale, the American Society for Civil Engineers, and those are the folks who build things. Um, C is mediocre, requires attention, as opposed to D, poor, at risk. So we're kind of in this between requiring attention and at risk. They said there were three trends that were worth noting. One was that you know, there's always been these enormous maintenance backlogs that are really hard to get through. So they say the backlogs haven't gone away. But asset management has been prioritizing. The funding that's available has been prioritized better. So that's sort of a positive trend um, that state and local governments have made progress. They've done state and local decisions on taxes to try to make sure that they raise funding and that they're really able to leverage anything they can get from the federal government um, to positively impact their infrastructure. And then finally, that there are still infrastructure sectors where data are very scarce and they're unreliable. So part of it is really being able to track it and figure out what we're doing. On the power side, you know, there are 600,000 miles of transmission and 5.5 million miles of distribution. And the distribution system has 92% of the outages out there. And outages cost the country between 28 and $169 billion a year, weather being the number one threat to those systems. Um, but they did say that transmission spending has gone up. So from uh, $15.6 billion in 2012 to almost $22 billion in 2017. And distribution spending has also gone up by about 54%. So the we are putting more investment into those systems to make them better. There are also solutions that are very cost-effective. Um, microgrids, energy storage is becoming more cost-effective. Control technologies and sensors of all kinds are much more available and cost-effective to the grid network itself. And those are, those are solutions that are really, um, at this point, much more accessible than they were. Ed, how does this grade, this C minus grade feel to you? You're there in New York. Boy, do I love New York. But whenever I travel around in car, or, you know, by train, I feel like I'm in some medieval torture chamber or something. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, ab absolutely right. Yeah, there's a there's a bit of the uh, the road, the kind of the exit road off of the George Washington Bridge that makes me laugh every time I go past it, where there are kind of metal spikes between a lane that are not kind of marked or indicated in any way you just have to sort of know they're there and if you don't you're going to shred your tires if you as you come off the bridge and it's and that has been there it's been like that for as long as i've been living in the us which is 11 years now and kind of nobody's come along to fix it as you say there's all kinds of examples like that things that are really pretty uh, kind of shocking about the state of infrastructure in the us that that c minus uh, grade absolutely feels appropriate and it's kind of interesting i always think it's amazing when you think about what the united states has achieved the tremendous achievements in so many fields but when you compare the state of the infrastructure here to many other countries having just come back from the uk even which is not necessarily one of the kind of the great world leaders in these kind of things but definitely does have um, superior infrastructure in many respects the the roads seem better uh, the rail system uh, much of it seems better and so on um, so it's clear there is a huge need for something to be done and I guess that's why you're seeing bipartisan consensus behind that and why you're able to get um, bipartisan supporters we've had in the Senate for increased spending on infrastructure that absolutely makes sense I think I mean from the uh, from the energy point of view it's been very interesting uh, thinking about the grid, um, as Catherine was saying, it's, it's very clear that um, the grid is a huge problem. As you move towards a lower carbon power sector, as you move towards uh, more development of uh, renewable energy, big issues there in terms of strain on the grid, 
significant need for new investment in grid connections, not least because of the problem that where the wind and the solar resource is the best tends to be some distance away from centres of population and connecting up those centres of high resource to centres of high demand is a really important part of decarbonising the power sector. So it's clear that in on the grid in particular there's a massive need for new investment and again to be fair that is something that uh, has been recognised in the administration it's been recognised in congress i think am i right in thinking it's uh, 73 billion dollars in the bipartisan infrastructure bill is targeted specifically at the grid there's this idea for a new grid authority which will help uh, get over some of the problems in uh, uh, building grid connections. And you've seen a lot of quite interesting ideas flying around, like, for instance, using highway routes in order to uh, to get right of way for uh, building new uh, electricity transmission, because, of course, that's often one of the huge problems is, is getting those rights of way. So, as I say, it's a very big problem. There's a lot of demand um, for new ideas and new money, but it does seem like at least a lot of people have realized that and are starting to do something about it. Yeah. So that tees you up well, Catherine, to talk about what's in the current scaled down but still pretty substantial infrastructure bill that Congress is uh, considering. First, let me just give some high-level thoughts on what's happening in the energy portion of this report. The grade got an improvement because of the increased spending on uh, transmission and distribution infrastructure. Some of that spending, you know, was residual spending coming out of the stimulus bill. Um, some of that is, uh, you know, infrastructure to support renewable energy, as you said, Ed. I think we're still lagging where we need to be to decarbonize the grid, but that provided a, a boost in our GPA. The, interestingly, this report does talk about climate resiliency a bit and the threats of extreme weather to infrastructure and how we are lagging in improving the resiliency of everything from the power grid to pipelines to water systems. Uh, but they kind of take a climate neutral look too, because they lament the delay or the cancellation of Keystone XL and what that does to future pipeline development. So they're they're also looking at, um, you know, the lagging pipeline infrastructure, particularly to support the gas system here in the U.S. So those are a few high-level thoughts from me on what is improving and also dragging down the grade according to this report. So Catherine, any thoughts there? And then what, like, how does that dovetail with priorities in the current infrastructure bill? Yeah, it's interesting. When I think about the civil engineers, they're the ones that are designing a lot of those systems that you talk about, the pipelines. At the same time, they're going to have to design the seawalls. So I think the civil engineers can probably pivot to some of the um, to some of the mitigation adaptation strategies for climate too. So when you look at what Congress is doing, which is pretty remarkable that they've been able to do a bipartisan bill, it's almost completely over the finish line. Hopefully by the time this episode airs, it will be over the finish line. Um, they're touting it as a trillion dollar bill. This is the smaller of two bills. It's really about 550 billion in new spending over five years. It's very much about real infrastructure. So $110 billion for roads and bridges, $66 billion for passenger and freight rail, $39.2 billion for public transit, $65 billion for broadband. I'm all in on that. I'm in rural broadband country right now, and we need it. Um, $16.6 billion for ports and waterways, $25 billion for airports, $55 billion for water infrastructure. Part of that is replacing a lot of lead pipes and getting rid of PFAS in water, which has been incredibly destructive to development of children and health of citizens. Um, $65 billion for power and grid, and a lot of that is focused on reliability and resilience. Um, it, it contains a lot of its transmission, but also distribution, critical materials, supply chains, a whole host of things that fall into that category. Then there's $47.2 billion specific to resilience. And a lot of that is security, cybersecurity, um, making sure that areas that are susceptible to climate change are, are 
shored up um, for both security and resilience reasons. Um, school buses and ferries, seven and a half billion. EV charging networks, seven and a half billion. And then just a whole host of other things, legacy pollution, water infrastructure. It really is a full infrastructure bill. Um, it it will have an enormous impact. It's not the climate bill, but it is. it will have some positive adaptation and mitigation impacts on climate change, but it's not, that's not the climate piece of what these two big bills are. So the politics were scaring a lot of people. Folks thought that the infrastructure bill was um, going to potentially collapse. Now it looks like it's going to go forward. Yeah, it definitely looks like it'll go forward um, as long as everybody holds together. And this is part of this two-pronged strategy, two bills. So they would get this bill done with bipartisan support. And the president has been very, very focused on this. They wanted to make sure they want to make sure that it gets over the finish line before they turn to part two, which will be a very partisan bill. And that's at three and a half trillion dollars. And that will have things like the clean energy tax credit bills and the accelerator and the clean energy standard and huge bump ups for you know funding a lot of these programs that have been authorized previously. So that's more of the stimulus, the extra stimulus type. And that's going to be the higher ticket item and will only be voted on by Democrats. So, but they had to get this bipartisan one really done first before they could turn to that one so they could hold everybody that they think uh, could vote for these bills in place. So last question, which is, why is infrastructure so difficult in America compared to other countries? We've been getting Ds for decades, according to this report card. It's really not a technical or an engineering problem. It's largely a political one and a legal one here in the U.S. Um, so Ezra Klein had this great episode recently in the last couple of weeks with Vox reporter Jerusalem uh, Demsas about why it's so hard to build infrastructure, even climate positive infrastructure like public transit and renewable energy projects here in the U.S. And it goes back to a couple reasons. One is political cycles that will incentivize, you know, maybe some flashy showcase projects rather than the hidden work of um fixing pipelines and water systems and sewer systems. The other way is our way our environmental laws work. You know, any citizen can get up and legally oppose a project for as long as they want, no matter the public good. And that can sometimes be important, but it can also lead to inaction. And so we have a legal system here that allows almost any reason or any citizen with enough resources to hold up a project. Um, any thoughts on, you know, what makes America unique and why it's been so difficult here, Ed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think you've um, you've hit the key points there. That I think that's absolutely right. I guess another one I'd throw in is, um, well, another couple maybe I'd throw in. One is the pretty complex uh, structure of government here between federal government, states, cities and localities, often those kind of uh, levels of government not agreeing with each other can make things difficult. And also, I think the um, the concept of property rights being very strongly defended in this country. I mean, for instance, um, uh, you'll be familiar with all these battles over eminent domain and the idea of, of using eminent domain in order to get um, infrastructure projects through. This is something which is massively controversial in this country and is you know, a, a real sort of... Um, um, political hot potato, much less so in other countries. Um, issues like that can be important. We've seen a lot of um, uh, pretty intense debates in England, for instance, over their new planned high-speed rail line there. So I'm not saying it doesn't happen elsewhere, but I think it's particularly tricky in the US and issues where in other countries the government would just kind of say to people, this is it, this is what we're doing, this project is happening, you can like it or lump it. Um, that doesn't really happen in the same way in the US, as you will know, and, and that does create problems for, for a lot of projects. I think it's interesting, and as you say, that whole framework of environmental legislation um, definitely is is very significant as being part of that. Um, of course, it was one thing that was done um, by President Donald Trump was to try and reform the way uh, environmental reviews worked under the National Environmental Policy Act, and there was a whole kind of um, issue that he had in terms of uh, trying to streamline that process and making it move more quickly, which was controversial with many people, was opposed by many people, and people said um, 
this is going to allow polluting projects to go go ahead much more easily. But actually, um, as you say, for bits of climate-friendly infrastructure, um, that could have been also a very positive step. And that actually, that having that kind of streamlined process could have helped a lot of investment get made that would end up reducing emissions. And so, I mean, people were saying at the time, and I think we'd say uh, still, that it was by no means a kind of uh, an unambiguous uh, bad thing that um, President was trying to do, do there in terms of uh, streamlining infrastructure approvals. So that's uh, going to be an interesting thing, I think, again, to watch for, for the future and for future administrations, um, the extent to which there are more attempts to kind, kind of uh, try and streamline that process, because um, it would certainly be a benefit to climate-friendly infrastructure as well. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up, Ed, because um, there is there is one really big contentious issue in this bill, which is federal transmission siting backstop authority. And it's, uh, you know, against the states that, you know, in order to build transmission, you've got to cross lands unless you're burying it. And um, it's been an enormous problem. And it's it's regional, so it's not state by state, and yet states have been able to shut projects down. And so that's something that that's very contentious right now. Another thing, Stephen, I would point to, and this is just pure politics, which is earmarks. It used to be, and it was pork barrel politics, right, where um, members of Congress and senators could really say, I want X amount of dollars for my state to build a highway. And uh, Senator Byrd of West Virginia was really good at that. There are some really beautiful highways in West Virginia that you can drive 85 on without batting an eye. Um, but that those went away. They were they were deemed to not be appropriate. Um, and I think that bogged things down a lot because it was much harder for, for members of Congress and senators to take things home, to take home money and projects to their constituents. And that's loosened up a little bit. And this bill, honestly, will give so many states and so many communities the ability to build back better, which is what the president has really talked about. And I think it, a lot of these folks, because it's bipartisan, a lot of folks will be able to go home and say, I got this for my constituents. Let's go into our third topic now, forestry offsets. Offsets are having a moment, but not necessarily a good one. There is historic demand for forest-based carbon credits driven by large corporates with climate goals and California's cap-and-trade program. There have been sharp criticisms of forestry offset programs for a lot of reasons. They don't cut point source emissions where we need them. They allow corporates to defer their own reductions. And they also keep infrastructure operating longer, maybe near communities of color that feel the pollution burden most. And they are, of course, vulnerable to extreme events like pest infestations or wildfires, which is exactly what we are seeing right now out west. Record-sized wildfires in Oregon and Washington have ripped through forests set aside for carbon offsets, offsets bought by companies like Microsoft and BP. Politico and Inside Climate News both had stories on this recently. Here's a quote from the Inside Climate News story. Elizabeth Wilmot, Microsoft's carbon program manager, said, We've bought these forest offsets that are now burning, and they're paying very close attention on what to do next. Catherine, what is happening right now? Yeah, if you look at Carbon Plan, uh, which which tracks a lot of these projects, you can see all of the California offset projects. And if you toggle with fire, it shows you exactly where those fires are. So yes, there have been fires in offset projects in Oregon and Washington State and California. And part of the issue is what's really an insurance program or a buffer pool, which gives you the ability, you know, you're really buying more credits, you're building more into it um, so that you're, you're allowing for more bad to happen in case of fire and you know you're building a little bit more into it sort of a hedge right but i talked to danny cullen ward who is with carbon plan in stanford law school and he said look it's really important to do forest offsets and it's a real thing but it is not done well at all there's a lot of magical thinking around it the exuberance around it does not match the difficulty that it is to price the risk and as you say fire drought pests pathogens um in California alone, they have a compliance market and a voluntary market. And the mar- voluntary markets are smaller. The compliance market for offsets in California 
They had half a billion dollars of overcrediting for the offsets just from a math error. Um, a lot of the price risk has really not been done in a scientific way at all. It's just been numbers people grabbed out of the air, and it hasn't accounted for all of the risk that you have to take into consideration when you're managing land. It's a lot harder than you think about it. It's much harder than just growing trees. And in fact, if you want to have a carbon program that's sustainable, it has to be for 100 years because that's how trees store carbon. And that means you'd have to have a 100-year contract. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a 100-year contract for anything. The longest term you can get on a home loan is in a contract is 30 years. 100 years does not account for bankruptcies, for shifts, for all of these risks that we have around managing land and building forests. And so it's just really much harder than it looks. And then you add the the fire complexity, and it really becomes gnarly. Yeah, absolutely agree. I think it's hugely important that you know, we've talked a lot um, about net zero goals. It's become something that everybody talks about uh, now, uh, but often I think people tend to forget the word net in it. Um, the fact of being able to have net zero emissions by using carbon capture, carbon offsets, um, forestry, among other things, is hugely important. Um, it would be much, much more difficult to achieve zero goals if they were just zero goals rather than net zero goals. But as Catherine's been outlining, it's really important to make sure that these offset schemes actually work. And it's just been very interesting. I noticed um, the British government has actually just launched an inquiry into carbon offsets to try and make sure that they are actually delivering what they they say they uh, are delivering. Uh, it's an inquiry that's going to be headed by Rachel Kite, a very brilliant woman used to run the UN Sustainable Initiative, uh, Sustainable Energy Initiative. She's now head of the uh, Fletcher School at Tufts University. It's going to be very interesting to see what she comes up with because it is clearly, as I say, a very, very important issue and only becoming more so as net zero becomes a thing that everyone is looking for. Yeah, another piece is that risk factors for these offset programs are looked at from a national level. So they, they look at California in the same risk as they would Vermont or North Dakota or any other state. And if you look at what's happening in California now, three times more acreage was burned um, this year than the same time last year. I mean, it is worse and worse every single year. And last November, 16 scientists sent a letter to the chair of the Compliance Offset Protocol Task Force in California to say, you need to look at this in a much more regional way. You need to be more accurate. You need to take into consideration all of these other risks um, and really build and substantially increase this forest buffer pool, this insurance pool, basically, for most projects based on evidence. Yeah, this is a really troublesome story. Offsets are, of course important for preserving the health of forests. And I think they're particularly beneficial for preserving the health of soils uh, when it comes to agricultural offsets. So I don't want to discount them entirely, but they've always made me a bit queasy because they can be difficult to track, particularly uh, internationally in places like Brazil, uh, where you know the people have done satellite imagery and found that places that have been set aside for uh, uh, carbon offsets are completely deforested. And as we mentioned a couple times, you have beetle infestations and droughts and fires that will ultimately get worse for virtually every forest ecosystem. So it is a troublesome development because there these corporate commitments rely so much on offsets today and over the next decade. Uh, they play a role, but this story shows that that role can um, pose a serious challenge to corporate climate commitments. Okay, let's transition to our free electrons to wrap up the show. These are stories we're following, something novel, interesting, maybe random. What is happening? Ed, you go first. What is your free electron this week? So this is what I did on my holidays. This is uh, my uh, vacation in the UK. Um, obviously impossible to stop thinking about energy altogether while I was there. And I noticed one really interesting story about offshore wind in the UK. UK is the world's number one offshore wind generator. It's massively important industry there and still growing very significantly. But a very striking report that got quite a bit of coverage uh, in the UK press 
Um, there's a report actually published by SSE, which is one of the big power suppliers in the UK, warning about the longer term economics of these offshore wind projects. Basically, they have um, support mechanisms that typically support their economics for 15 years. As those start to roll off in the 2030s, the economics of these projects are going to be really quite significantly challenged. Um, they're probably going to need significantly higher power prices than what they're able to achieve. It's that classic problem, of course, you see it quite often with um, variable renewables, that at the points when generation is at its highest, power prices collapse. We see that with um, California, with solar, wind in parts of West Texas and so on, all those kind of places where you get a lot of renewable generation, it can have a big impact on power markets. And so that's going to create a big problem potentially for the economics of offshore wind in the UK, not immediately, but as I say, into the, the 2030s and beyond. And so there's a call to reform the UK power market, really. You need some pretty fundamentally different power market structure in place in order to make sure that those wind projects can remain viable into the long term. So that's, that's an interesting question, as, as I say, one for the future, but definitely one that's going to be worth watching, I think. Yes, definitely a challenge when... As a variable resource, you are a price taker. Catherine, what's your free electron? Yeah, so I saw this story out of Oberlin, Ohio. It's Oberlin College and Conservatory, which is a very progressive college um, and you know has certainly been very much a leader on divestment and you know trying to figure out how do we really move forward um, with Par- with Paris Climate Accord and they secured 80 million dollars in certified climate bonds for their sustainable infrastructure program this is only the second certified climate bond offering among U.S. colleges and universities and the third in the world. And these bonds attract bids three times more than the amount of the offering. And this $80 million will allow them to really fully fund the first phase of their $140 million program. They're going to build a geothermal energy system. They're going to replace old steam pipes, save millions of gallons of water, more than a million dollars a year in operating costs. Um, their buildings are being upgraded, which is, as we know, an extremely uh, expensive uh, endeavor. But it's super interesting to me that they're able to really align with the goals and targets of the Paris Climate Agreement in a very financial way. And I think that this is something that's going to get a lot of interest from other institutions as we move forward um, with the you know conference of parties coming up. Yes, and we've seen a lot of uh, cities, universities, institutions come together and announce that they're going to try to hit the targets of the Paris Climate Accord. So it's nice to see projects like this actually being developed to get these localities or individual institutions there. Yes, and that they're valued by the market, which is great. So my story is something that I came across in the last week that I was not aware of, but Gris did a great report on it. And it is about the latest flashpoint in climate policy around the U.S., which is ultra-local. So cities around the country have passed laws to get 100% clean energy. Some of them are, as part of those laws, banning new fossil fuel infrastructure. We've seen simultaneous um, efforts in cities to ban new gas connections in buildings. And so in Tampa, Florida, the uh, there was an effort to set a 100% clean energy target. And that came under fire. And a Republican state senator uh, introduced a bill that would make that proposal illegal. And so a bunch of people came together and told the councilman who proposed the policy to drop it because they didn't want to create this cascading problem in the state where all these other cities would, it would be illegal for them to set these targets. But an effort went ahead in the state house anyway. And there was this bill that was approved and Governor Ron DeSantis signed them into law in June. I didn't realize this until I read the story that prohibits local governments from taking any action that restricts or prohibits energy sources used by utilities. And so inevitably, that means that basically any kind of 100% clean energy law is uh, restricted. So the bills were actually pushed by 
the gas industry. They were co-written by the gas industry. And what you're seeing is that the gas industry has been very active in fighting back against a lot of these local ordinances banning the gas connections. We've talked about this fight on the podcast in recent months. Um, but I mention this because this is the new front in the war's um, over climate policy. I think in like the 2010 to 2015 timeframe, it was really like net metering and the war over distributed solar. And now it's like the war over whether or not we ban gas infrastructure and what this local policy looks like. And so I think people should be paying attention to this story because it's going to define the next phase of climate policy in this country. All right. Well, this was fun. Ed Crooks, Vice Chair of the Americas at Wood McKenzie. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great talking to you. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for being here. We are a production of Postscript Audio and Wood McKenzie. You can hit us all up on social media to comment on this story and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and send a link to your friends and colleagues. It really helps people find the show. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. Talk to you soon.